Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Everything we've been talking about in Ephesians has been so powerful in the way that it's directed us towards our calling. The first three chapters, Paul's just talking about who you are, who you are, who you are. He wants you to know the hope and the power that is at work within you. He wants you to know the identity that you have in Christ. He wants you to know the, the, the greatness of the call of God for your life. And he, he just continually hones in on this idea in those first three chapters about how God's grace has completely changed who we are. You are no longer the old person. You are the new person. Amen. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you right, the, right now this morning and say, you're the new person, not the old person. Right, We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And then there's a shift in chapter 4 where Paul begins to speak about how that new creation, that new life that God has given you looks like you affecting some change. It doesn't look like you just coming to church on a Sunday, clapping hands a little bit and then going out for lunch. It looks like us being world changers. It looks like our city being impacted. It looks like your surroundings and your, and your world in which you live your, your life from day to day being influenced because you're there. The places that you go should be different because you're there. Because when you're there, God's there. Come on. You're walking in carrying a spiritual authority, carrying a spiritual call of God. And so the Bible says, don't lose sight of the fact that we are called to make a difference in this world. In Ephesians 4 to 6, Paul begins to speak about all the things that we're supposed to do or live out as believers. And the whole purpose of living out those things is not for us to now go back to the Old Testament and try and fulfill some laws, and try and just be very, very good people, but actually because we are called to imitate our God in walking in love. That there are people out there that don't know Jesus, that don't know the power of God, that don't know the hope of the gospel, that don't know the message of Christ. And we are the ones who are going to be the carriers who have a calling to take that message to them. And so he says, so therefore walk be imitators, walk in love as God walked in love towards you and gave himself up for you through the person of Jesus. In the same way, we get to walk in love towards one another and towards our world by giving ourselves up for them. And so sometimes we stay away from stuff that would be fine for us to partake in, but we stay away because it's how we walk in love. We look at how we live. We look at our marriages. We look at our, our families. We look at our lives. We look at our businesses. We look at how we conduct ourselves because you are the testimony of God to a broken world. The hope that you have and the grace that, of God that impacts you allows you to be that testimony towards them. And so then as Paul gets to the end of his letter and he's just talking about how we conduct ourselves, he says, remember that when we engage in this kind of activity, when we go out, when we're living for Christ, when we're, when we're trying to reach people in a city, you are not doing so unresisted. There is a resistance, there is a battle, there is a fight for the souls of people, for the future of a city, for a nation that every single person in this room, whether you like it or not, you have already been enlisted for. You were enlisted before you had a choice about being enlisted. God called you. The only thing that you could do is go AWOL and decide that you'll run away from that call, but the calling won't go away. 
Come on, every single one of us have been called to walk in this spiritual calling and to engage in this battle with these forces, whether we like it or not. And it is God's will for us to stand and fight. So we're going to go to Ephesians 6, and I'm just going to start off by reading these first two verses, Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. And I know uh, Pastor Will did share a few thoughts on this uh, two weeks ago, but I just wanted to get back to Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, because he says, finally, here at the end of the letter, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. So there is a fight that you have been equipped to partake in a battle, combat, and you are dressed for battle. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at exactly how you dress yourself for battle, how we're able to engage and how we're able to walk in victory. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He has schemes. He has plots. He has plans. He has, he has strategies against your life, against the church, against the message of Jesus. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The original Greek actually switches those around and says blood and flesh. Making the reality of, of, of the physical realm even more apparent. Blood and flesh. We don't, that's not what we wrestle with. That's not where our fight is. But against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we're going to break down what all of those things mean. And uh, in, the, in the next few weeks, we're not just going to show you the origin of these forces, but how you can walk in victory over them in every area of your lives as you carry out the call of God. Does that sound good? Awesome. Let's just pray together for a moment. Lord, we thank you so much today that we get to just allow the Bible to speak to us, God. Thank you that that we don't skip parts and we don't have to sidestep things, but we can wrestle, we can, we can have it speak to us, we can allow it to change our perspective, God, we can allow it to raise us up as mature men and women in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the discipleship that is happening as we read your word. Thank you for how our hearts are being transformed. And we just thank you, God, for the courage and the, and the strength that you are giving to each one of us, that we stand in your strength the strength of your might, God. We thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen, amen. So I realize that for our postmodern world in which we live, and for, I think here in Africa, our context is slightly different. I think it's a lot easier still in, especially the African cultures, to believe in a supernatural realm and a supernatural world. It's something that uh, that many of you may have grown up with and may have, may have encountered, may have heard from your parents. Um, but as our world is increasingly, especially in, the, in our urban context, being westernized in its thought, we, we have moved over the last hundred years or so closer and closer and closer to a pure naturalism. The idea that everything that exists is just what can be seen, what can be, what can be felt, what can be smelt, what can be touched, what can be tasted. Everything that is governed by our five senses. And we actually leave very little room in our thinking for the supernatural. In fact, it's one of the reasons why we're in a day and age where people even struggle to conceive of the idea of God, even though 
their hearts still know that there must be something and they start to give it different names and call it the universe and call it a power and call it a force or whatever. But in our hearts, we have begun to edge out anything that looks like it's supernatural. And that's why C.S. Lewis begins to speak about and say it's such a strange thing to do because, because the very first miracle we're all encountered with is the fact that anything exists rather than nothing. There is something here and that something came from somewhere. It didn't create itself. It's not self-created. That's categorically impossible. You cannot pre-exist yourself, which you would need to in order to create yourself. And so something is here rather than nothing, and something cannot come from, from nothing, and therefore something had to exist before everything that came. And so there's already a very big miracle that we're living on. It's this life. It's this world. It's this universe that we're in. And so C.S. Lewis says that when somebody gets healed in a church service or when something supernatural happens, that's just, that's just the same writing that's written across the universe, written in letters small enough for us to read. It's the same story. It's the same miracle. But now it's just a little bit on a smaller scale so that you can see something be healed in front of you and say, that's miraculous. But everything that we live in is by the word and the miraculous power of God. This physical world that you can touch and taste and see and smell and feel, it all comes from the miraculous power of God because all things were created by Him and for Him. So we already live in the supernatural realm. Even the, the physical came out of the, out of the supernatural or the spiritual. And so in our natural world, we've rejected that idea and it's become so hard for people to fathom the or conceive of the biblical truths regarding the spirit. In fact, I've heard some people even begin to deny that as people, we even have a spirit. You see, what we don't always realize is that you are made up of three parts. You have your physical body, but your physical body then has a soul, which is the seat of your emotion. It's your, your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's, it's the seat of your personality. It's who you are, your soul. But then there's a deeper part of you, which is your spirit. And that's the part that God created when he fashioned Adam from the dust of the ground. And Adam was a physical being, and he, and he may even have had a soul or a personality at that time, but he was alive like the animals are alive. And then the Bible says God breathed his uncreated Ruach spirit into the nostrils of Adam, and Adam became a living bios, zoe kind of life. He became a living being, a, a, a zoe, God-life being. So we have an uncreated spirit within us. And it's why when we hear God's voice, we don't need to hear him audibly. It's why when Paul prays for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, which we looked at, he begins by praying for them by saying, may the eyes of your heart, your spirit be enlightened. May it be filled with light so that you may know something supernatural. When Jesus speaks to Peter in the book of Matthew and he says, who, who do the people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjonah, for flesh and blood. There it is again. Has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There is a knowledge that you can have that is not a physical knowledge. It didn't come from, from a physical source. It came from revelation of the Spirit. And the Bible says that deep cries out unto deep. The Spirit of God witnesses with our spirits that we are God's children. How do you know that you're a child of God? Well, God's spirit confirms it in your spirit. And so there's, there's 
two planes or realms of living, the physical one in which we can see all around us right now, but simultaneously, you are not just a physical being. Simultaneously, you live and exist very much so in the spiritual realm. You exist in the spiritual realm. In fact, your spiritual reality is greater than your physical reality. It is a more eternal and a more uh, a full reality of who you are than the physical life that you live on this earth. You can perceive physical things with your five senses. The Bible talks about the natural man, talking about the, the one who only perceives things as physical, as you know, what can be perceived scientifically. The natural man does not perceive the things of God. His mind and his heart and his soul are closed off to the spiritual things, but the spiritual man knows spiritual things. And so you have a spiritual man, a spiritual woman on the inside of you. That's who you are. And you are able to perceive spiritual things with your spirit. Your spirit has ears to hear. It has eyes to see. You are able to perceive things beyond the natural. It's supernatural. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, like we can see them, they're seen, but we don't look at them. They're not the foundation of our truth. They're not the foundation that we live from. We don't just live according to circumstances. We don't just live according to what we perceive. No, we live according to something greater, but at the things which are not seen. How's that? You don't look at the things that are seen, but you look at the things that are not seen. How can you look at something that's not seen? How can you perceive something you cannot see? Through the Spirit, in the Spirit, by the Spirit. For the things which are seen are temporary. They're temporal. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They, they, they are a flash in the pan. They're not the eternal things. They're not the everlasting things. They're not the things to base your life on. But the things which are not seen are eternal. They're going to be there forever. At a point, there will be a switch. There will be a, 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 a something will, will just switch in, 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 the, in the reality of humanity and of this world. And the things that formerly were unseen, supernatural, and spiritual will then become our full reality. That's the full redemption that the Bible talks about. When we will no longer perceive God in spirit only, but we will see Him physically. The spirit and the, the, the physical and the spiritual will become one. They are combined right now, but where all we will see will be supernatural. And so in the Bible, when we read the Bible... We encounter the supernatural realm from the very beginning of Genesis, literally from the first words, in the beginning, God. Supernatural, right from the beginning, right to the end. The spirit and the bride say, come. Right through the Bible, the super, supernatural spiritual realm and reality is present. In fact, the Bible doesn't even try to prove the supernatural. I think in the time that it was written, that would have seen, seemed absurd. The Bible assumes that we all know it, and we do. It assumes it as true. It speaks from that perspective 
Because God himself is spirit and created us as spiritual beings. Just as he created angelic beings or the angels as a host of servants of ministering spirits. And so what we have in reality is God the, God the Father, God the, 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 you know, the, the Trinity, the Godhead. You have God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is God. Then you have humanity created physically, but also with the Spirit. And then you have a, the, the spiritual beings, the, the angels. And a third of those angels rebelled against God in pride, which we'll look at in a moment, and, and became demonic forces here on earth. That's it. Anything other to that is the physical, organic environment, which is, which is not spiritual uh, in nature. But when it comes from a spiritual perspective, there's God, there's us, and there's the angelic beings. That's all that there is. So when, when people want to pray to you know, loved ones that have left the earth or you know, whatever, that, that's not a thing. Right? When we engage with the supernatural, we're either engaging with God's power or Satan's power. We're on one of those two platforms when we begin to engage. But Satan was cast down to earth. That's why he's called the God of this age, because he, he, he arrived with Jesus and, or to Jesus when Jesus was, after Jesus was baptized in the, and he went into the wilderness. And he said to him, look at all the, the, the kingdoms out there. I will give you everything you can see. He had the power to give in this, in this world. He had the power to give earthly things. And so he reigns or reigned for a time on this earth. And Luke 10, 18 says, Jesus said to them, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Satan and his demons, who originally were angels, rebelled against God and were then cast out of heaven and fell from heaven. What, it, what was Satan's sin? What was it what, that, that stirred up the rebellion in his heart? I think there's something significant in this. We find the reason for Satan's rebellion in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 14. And the prophet here speaks about Satan, who was formerly known as Lucifer, and, and how he came to be fallen, how he came to fall like lightning from heaven. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the, the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Stars of God is a reference to the other angels. I will. So these are the, this, this little passage in Isaiah is known as the five I wills of Satan. The five I wills. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. There's one thing that was the original sin. What is the original sin? The very original sin? Pride. It's pride. 
I will be my own God. I will be my own God. We see the same thing all the way through. Last year we did 1 Corinthians and all the way through 1 Corinthians, Paul is just addressing pride. Whether it's Christian pride, spiritual pride, religious pride, sinful pride, whatever kind of pride, it's all one thing. It's pride. It's self-righteousness. It is what caused Satan to fall. That's why the Bible says pride comes before the what? The fall. We fall when we walk in pride. And so Satan arrives on this earth. He's been cast out of heaven. He can do nothing to get back at God. But humanity is here and he knows God loves people. And so he makes it his mission, if it's the last thing he does, to destroy as many lives as he possibly can. And he brings that seed of pride to Adam and Eve in the garden and he sows the same seed. First of all, by calling God's sovereignty and rulership into question, did God really say? He undermines truth. He undermines what is true. He says, did God really say? And Eve responds and says, yes, God said, if we ate of this, you know, we would die. And, and he says, no, surely you would not die. He speaks a lie. He just lies. No, you won't die. You'll be fine. In fact, God knows that when you eat of, the, of this tree, you will have the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be what? Like God. And we often think that Adam and Eve were tempted, or Eve was tempted by you know, the, the beauty of the, of the fruit that she was picking out of the tree, but they were living in Eden. There was fruit everywhere. Everything was good for food. The Bible actually tells us what the temptation was. In Genesis 3 verse 4, it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. There's the temptation, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That was the temptation. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In essence, the original temptation was, you can be your own God. When Satan tempted uh, Jesus, he said, I will give you all these kingdoms. You can rule. You can rule your own life. You can rule your own kingdom. You don't need to be surrendered to the God. You can be like God over your own life. The, the whole movement, the whole new age movement and age of Aquarius and the idea that we evolved physically and now we're going to evolve spiritually, which is that new age idea that came into our world in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, um, which kind of has now morphed into something a little bit different. But, but that, that whole idea was, if they had a tagline, is we are gods in the becoming. We're becoming our own gods. Soon we'll be so powerful as people that we'll just have a, a one world government and world peace and, and, and we'll, we'll have this utopia that we'll, that we'll live in because we're all evolving towards that. We don't need God. It's why they built the Tower of Babel. Let's build ourselves. We have unity. We are one. Let's build a tower so high that we will reach into the clouds and be like God. It's still the same thing. 
It's the same thing that you struggle with Monday to Saturday and a little bit on Sunday. I will do it. It's about me. It's about what I can do. Even when I'm a Christian, well, how good can I be as a Christian? And you see, true faith is a movement away from yourself. True faith is when you say, I trust in God, in His power, in His grace, in His might. And I, I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. It's death to self. That's why Jesus said, you're going to follow me. You're going to take up your cross. Die, die to yourself. Deny yourself. And then follow me. You can't stand in your own strength. But the reason why we still battle to surrender to God is we want to be our own gods. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. And so from that time, the spiritual life that God breathed into Adam's nostrils and put into the spirit of mankind was corrupted by sin. And it did do what God said it would do. It produced death. In fact, it produced slavery to death and darkness. And then in that moment, Satan and all of his demonic forces had power to wield over humanity, to oppress and suppress and possess and destroy ultimately. So we were not just slaves to sin. Oh man, I can't stop sinning so bad. No, you were actually captive to the devil. Have you ever seen a pit bull or a, or a, or a, or a, a staffy get a hold of a chew toy? And grab that thing and just shake it around. That was our lives in the, in the mouths of Satan. You had no hope of freedom. And I just don't always think we appreciate when the Bible says whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I don't actually think we understand how unfree we were before. I don't actually think we genuinely, if we did, we would all be in tears on our knees before God thanking him over and over and over again that we are no longer chew toys of the devil. Because our lives would, would have been wrecked in every way. Jesus speaks about the devil when he speaks about religious people. He speaks about, he's speaking to the Pharisees in John 8 verse 44. If you think I'm being straightforward this morning, I have nothing on Jesus. I have nothing on how straightforward he was, especially with religious people. He says in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. Imagine if I opened up a sermon like that, if I got invited to speak to some religious people and I'm like, hey, you, you guys, you're all of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. That's what children do. They do the desire of their father. So when Satan's your father, your will is to do his desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, just killing, producing death, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So that's just his nature. He just can't do anything else. When he is engaging in your life, when he is bringing an attack against your life, it is all about lies. It's about lying to you about who God is, like he did to Eve. Did God really say? He's lying to you about who God is. He's lying to you about who you are, about what you need. And he's lying to you about the responsibility you carry. 
There will be no death. Don't worry. That's just a story they tell kids to make them behave properly. There's no heaven and hell. Just do whatever makes you feel good. I mean, we buy coffee mugs with that logo on there. We buy diaries that we carry around with those words. Do what makes you happy. This is the, the this is just, it seems, I mean, you buy it at like stationery stores. You're like, this is cute. It's really a strategy of Satan and his demons, but yeah, it's cute. Because it's, it's indoctrination. It's indoctrination. I want to ask you a question. Are you woke this morning or are you awake? Because the wokeness culture that has crept into our world is discipling our world at an alarming rate, telling us that this is how we're all supposed to think. But, it, but you've got to not just be woke, you've got to be awake. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood and cultural uh, structures of power and, and, and critical theory and all that thing. It is against demonic forces. And we are enlisted for the battle. You're enlisted. You can't go, oh, I don't know if I really, you know, I'm just going to go home and watch Formula One and eat a sandwich. You know, I don't really know if I, that's what I want to do today. But church, the Bible tells us you were given away before you were formed in your mother's womb to the purposes of God. So you're engaged in this battle whether you like it or not. Satan is a liar. And what is his intention? John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief. Satan comes only, only. He has no other intention for your life. He, he has no benevolence in him. There's no benefit to it at all. He only comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. That's his intention for your life. But I came, Jesus said, that you may have life. That you may have that life abundantly. That you may have victory. That you may have power to walk in the things I've, I have made available to you. Satan, however, comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and he does it through lies and deceit, by disfiguring God, getting you to reject your accountability, and selling you on sin. That's what he has, one purpose, to destroy. And the world has bought so deeply into this, that they literally have no resistance to this. They are the chew toy, that they do the devil's marketing for him. Honestly, he's discipled people so well that he can sit back. I don't know exactly what he does on a day-to-day -day basis except destroy lives, but he, he, he can sit back with a pina colada and a TV remote in his hands because the world is just doing the job for him. It's discipling, 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 marketing, 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 creating cultures that drive people's lives except for the church, except for the people of God, except for the community that is like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That's who we are. God says to Jeremiah, I will make you a one-man defense system against the culture of this world. We are the defense system of God. We are the fortress into which the lost can run in order to be saved from those things. And so we stand in the power of his might because lives depend on it. And we have a job to do, church. And how often are we just worried about, okay, well, what are we doing next weekend? And 
How much, how, you know, what, what are the things that we're going to, you know, whatever it may be. We don't realize that there is a, a vital, vital role for us all to play. And so the culture of this world is discipling people. Uh, demons are teaching people. And you're like, okay, too dramatic. I mean, I know we're talking about stranger things, but come on, demons are not teaching people. Okay, well, let's just go to the Bible. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. It says, the Spirit of God expressly says, specifically, he's not mincing his words here. The Spirit's not vague about this. God's Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will abandon the faith, even the faith in Jesus, and will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by what? Demons. You didn't realize that the devil was a teacher. Some of you, think back in, thinking back to school, might think that some of your teachers were devils, but... The devil's a teacher. Demons are teachers. They will teach you things if you let them. If you don't base your life in this book, if you don't base your life in the truth, you will. if you don't stand in the truth, you'll stand in the lie. And the father of lies will teach you things that are lies in order to destroy your life. And so demons teach the world how to think. This is why we go back to Ephesians 2. Because we've actually encountered this several times in Ephesians. We just haven't honed in on it like we are right now. But in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about that state. This is the state or the effect of Satan in people's lives. He says in, in, in Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. You had no resistance. In which you once walked, following the course of this world. There it is, that discipleship. Following the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. That is talking about a demonic force. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in those who reject God, it's not just a natural thing, it's a supernatural thing. They reject God and there is a spirit at work in them. And so that's why I tell you, if you want to get people upset, I mean, I, I, I sent out an Easter invite to my to, to my area, you know, your neighborhood WhatsApp group. I said out an in Easter invite. I said, hey, my wife and I are pastors. We lead a church. You know, it, it didn't go down well. We love the people. But some of the spirits that are controlling those people are like, oh, no. These guys are behind enemy lines. We had this neighborhood locked down. Now we have believers here. And they're affecting change. They're sending out invitations. They're making a difference. There's a hostility we meet when we begin to engage in the call of God. But they are working by and controlled by a spirit that is at work within them, the sons of disobedience, among whom all, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were all there at one point or another, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So children of wrath, which is our nature, controlled by these spirits. But listen to this. It says, you lived in the passions of your flesh, your sinfulness, carrying out the desires of your body, whatever your body wants, and your mind, whatever you feel or think you want. Where's the spirit there? You see, what, how God created us to live is that your spirit is dominant. It has authority in your life. Your spirit 
created by God, is the boss. Your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions, they are in submission to your spiritual man. And your body then follows through. Your body is just a vehicle. It does whatever your spirit tells it to do. So the idea is is that your spirit should perceive truth from God, should tell your mind and your will how to think, and your mind and your will then execute it through your body. But when Satan got mankind to fall, what happened is we went out of order because the spirit died. And now we live according to what we feel on the outside and what we think on the inside. Just what do I feel? What do I, you know, do what makes you happy. Oh, I am hungry, so I should eat. Or I desire something, so I should partake. The Bible says their belly is their God. Whatever I want, just whatever I feel I need. No more submission to the Spirit. But when we are reborn in Christ, the Spirit bursts into life. The recreated spirit of Christ within you. And all of a sudden, the order is able to be restored. Which is why the Bible says, and we'll get into the armor of God in the weeks ahead. But where the Bible says you have the helmet of salvation. Because you take every thought that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. You take it captive and you make it obey. That's the battle that you've got to win in your own life. And so, before... We were led just by our bodies and our souls, but now we are spiritually led. We were like, before, without Jesus, we were like the pigs. When Jesus got to the demoniac of Gadara and this man who had thousands of demonic spirits inhabiting him, which is also something that we will talk more about coming up. I'm just kind of laying a foundation for this series. I don't exactly know how many weeks we're going to do, but, but this is some spiritual truth that is, comes up in Ephesians that I think we should talk about. But there's a point where Jesus drives these demons out and sends them into a herd of pigs. And the, 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 the herd of pigs just run off the cliff and, and just fall down into the ocean and, and, and they perish. That is a beautiful, succinct picture of Satan's desire for every life. Fill you, get you to run off the cliff, destroy you. There's no, there's no, they didn't even stop to, to graze a little on the way down. They didn't say goodbye to some love, loved ones. They didn't enjoy the view. You know, they, there's, there's no fun in that. It's just straight off. And that's his desire to destroy. That was our future until God, as he continues there in Ephesians 2, until God, rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive with Christ, saved us by grace raised us up. This is what it says in verse six, raised us up with him. So you're no longer dead, but you were raised with Jesus. When Jesus was raised, you were raised. And then God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so you might be seated in Joburg this morning, but your spiritual man, your spiritual woman, your spiritual position before God is that you are seated with Christ in heavenly places at the right hand of God, a place of authority. That's who you are. Not just somebody trying to survive, trying to overcome a little bit of sin. You are in a position of power over Satan because you are God's workmanship. There are things that God is now going to do through you that the devil can no longer prevent. How powerful is that? You're not subject to him anymore. You're not subject to these forces You are in Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, 
He has lost his dominion over you because you are no longer under the law. You are under grace. Sin no longer has dominion over you. And so Colossians 2 verse 15 uh, actually says what we read in Ephesians. It's, we, we, it spoke about rulers and authorities. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but rulers and authorities and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. And, you know, it mentions those different classes. But, but, but listen to what Colossians 2.15 says. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Our battle is against them, but just so you know, Jesus has already disarmed them. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Triumphing. He triumphed over them in the cross, in what he did on the cross. So you see, Satan defeated mankind. And then there was no way for mankind to defeat Satan. We didn't have the strength. We were guilty. And so God sent a second Adam, Jesus, to become man so that mankind could again defeat Satan. And then he did it. He finished the work on the cross. And he brought all of humanity into victory as long as they are in Christ. And that image there from Colossians 2, parading, putting them to a public shame is what kings would do in the time of the Bible when they went out to war against other nations and those nations fought. The victorious king would take the king of the defeated nation captive along with all of his generals and strip them naked and chain them and march them through the streets, putting them to a public shame, showing, look at these pathetic men. They are the ones who resisted. Where is their resistance now? That's the imagery that Colossians 2 points towards, that when Jesus defeated Satan, he defeated him so thoroughly that he even just publicly shamed him in front of all of us. Who is this Satan? He brought us that kind of victory. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, I get back to that scripture I read in the beginning. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. There they are. Against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. We're going to look at how you do that in the weeks coming up, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I want to show you here that the purpose of God equipping you and giving you the victory is so that you can stand. That's the idea here, that you continue to stand. God wants you to stand in the power of His might. This is how Paul ends his letter. He says, Finally, be strong. Be strong, church. And I wondered about that when I read it. How can you tell somebody to be strong? Surely they either are strong or they're not. Right? Like if I had a, a one-ton block of lead up on stage here this morning, which I wanted to bring as an illustration, but I couldn't move it. And I called my wife up and I said to her, babes, can you just move this for me quick? And she tried to move that block. Would it help me to say, babes, just be strong? You know, as husbands, you know, that's how you get into trouble. 
it wouldn't be helpful for me to just say, be strong. Because her strength is limited. So how can Paul write to the church in Ephesus and say, be strong? How is that possible? In the Greek, this is actually a passive verb. Which means be strengthened. Be strengthened. Be made strong. It literally means to be strengthened in the strength of another, not your own strength. Be strong. But I'm not strong. No, no, sorry. You misunderstood. I didn't mean that you should be strong. But that you should be strengthened in the strength of another. Stand in that strength. This is the miracle of being empowered with the strength of another person in order to stand and be found standing, to stand firm, therefore, no matter what you face. This is the ability to stand when the weight of anxiety or depression has hit your life. This is the ability to stand when there is conflict or turmoil in your life, when there is slander and opposition, when there is strife in your relationships and every other kind of oppression that the enemy might bring against your life, the schemes of the devil. Stand. How are you going to stand? Be strong. How are you going to be strong? In the strength of another. This is what Paul is saying. When these things come, don't try and take the enemy on in your own strength. Be empowered by what? By the Lord in the strength of His might. Can we just leave that verse up there? Just look at that. Be strong in the strength of His might. You can just leave that up there for a second. I want to show you one more thing here. The word might there is the Greek word iskus. And it signifies what God is by His nature. By the strength of His might. That's, that's the character of God. That's the faithfulness of God. That's the person of God. How am I going to be strong? Do you know who God is? Do you know His nature? Do you know how good He is? What He's going to do is the might of who God is is going to flow backwards towards you and it is going to be producing strength so that you can be strong. You see, it doesn't come from, well, if I get enough sleep and I eat healthy and, and, I, and, I, and I work out in the mornings, then I'll be strong enough to take on life. No, you won't be. It's going to come from knowing who is my God. Who is my God? And His might will flow backwards towards me. He is perfectly all-sufficient and mighty, victorious and gracious. And we trust in Him. We look to Him so that we can be strengthened. And so from His nature flows strength and it flows towards us. I'm gonna to go to Ephesians 1.17 because I love how we've already read all of this and then we get to go back and show how it's just a complete picture. Ephesians 1.17 says, I pray, here it is, and I'm gonna just skip a few bits here. I pray that the eyes of your hearts be enlightened. We spoke about that earlier. That you may know See, a, a spiritual knowing, a revelation. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power, the, the power of God, towards us? His power towards us who believe. According to the working of the strength of His might. 
who God is. That he worked in Christ. Now this same power, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right hand of God in heavenly places. Where are you seated right now? With Christ in heavenly places. That's who you are. This power is towards us. It touches our lives. It changes us. It transforms us. It gives us the potency to act. But it is not our strength. Another way of calling it is to call it grace. It's grace. Another way is anointing. It's the anointing. It's the favor of God on your life. It's His presence of God in your life that gives you the ability to act. It is power towards you. That's why Paul can write in Philippians 4, 12 to 13. He says, I know how to be brought low. I've suffered things in this life. I know how to abound. I've had great times in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens, be strengthened, me. And so this is the ability to stand up under pressure. Stand up under opposition. Stand up under attack. And to stand firm no matter what. This is the power that we have in Christ. Romans 4.20 speaks about Abraham, says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong. Be strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Glory means to give voice to the attributes and the nature of God. As he gave God glory, he grew stronger. Be strong. I'm not strong is what you might be saying. I, I know that's kind of the point. You're not. But when we are weak, He is strong. Be strengthened in the power of His might. Amen? God gives us the ability, the strength that we need to stand against the schemes of the devil. And a lot of that has to do with how we adorn the armor of God and how we battle against these supernatural forces. And those are things that we're going to looking at, we're going to be looking at as we go on in the series. But today I want you to know from the very beginning, the battle belongs to Jesus. He has won the battle, and you stand in the strength of the knowledge of Christ. Be strengthened in his might. How many of you feel that you just need some strength in your life this morning? You just need to be strengthened. Why don't you stand? I'm going to pray for you.